Welcome to the Untold Civil War. So glad to be releasing another episode. This year has been a wild one. The news has been filled with tragedy, as in the story of the lives lost on the submersible Titan. There has also been talk about innovation in regards to artificial intelligence. Well, tonight we address those topics in regards to the cold case, the nautical mystery, H.L. Hunley. So grab the magnifying glass, put up the crime scene tape, and let's delve into some untold civil war. Submersibles have been in the news lately, and so on this episode, Michael Scafuri returns to discuss that infamous fish boat, the H.L. Hunley. Uh, he has over 20 years experience in archaeological survey and excavation around the world, and has been part of the Hunley project since the submarine's discovery at the bottom of Charleston Harbor. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be back. So we discussed on the previous episode much about the Hunley story uh, but for those who may have missed the episode or if we just want to catch up real quick, can you tell us exactly what the Hunley is? Yes, uh, the Hunley was a submersible or a submarine built in 1863. It was used by private individuals in the South to try and uh, engage and disrupt the blockade of Charleston, South Carolina. It was shipped to Charleston after being constructed in Mobile, Alabama. Moved to Charleston, South Carolina in the summer of 1863. Had a few mishaps, sank twice, uh, second time killing its primary crew, including its namesake, Horace Lawson Hunley. Uh, Hunley was from New Orleans, Horace Hunley, and he was an investor, a lawyer, and teamed up with uh, a few machinists and engineers to explore the idea of creating a submersible that could contribute to their side in the war effort. They built a submarine in New Orleans. It didn't, uh, they didn't get a chance to really use it before they had to abandon it because New Orleans fell to the north. So they moved their operation to Mobile, Alabama, uh, constructed a second submarine, which uh, was lost in an accident in Mobile Bay in early 1863. And they moved forward and built the third one, which ended up being the H.L. Hunley submarine. After coming to Charleston and after sinking twice, um, another member of the team, a man named George E. Dixon, not uh, part of the main crew, but uh, you can imagine a, a number of individuals who were part of the team that either helped build it or trained on it, participating in the project, but not being uh, you know, selected as the, the crew each time it went out. And so there were other people around that uh, survived after Hunley lost his life with the primary crew. He petitioned a man named PGT Beauregard, who was the defender. Um, he was a Confederate Army general who was in charge of defending the city of Charleston. Um, there was an ongoing siege, uh, naval blockade, and land forces that had engaged uh, one of the surrounding forts in the summer of 1863. They didn't take it right away, but some very significant battles took place in and around Charleston at this time. And so uh, George Dixon petitioned PGT Beauregard to give them another chance. Beauregard consented and allowed him to recruit a third and what ended up being the final crew of the H.L. Hunley submarine. And they trained for a couple months. And February 17th, 1864, they finally went out about four miles from the beach off to sea um, and engaged a uh, one of the blockading ships of the U.S. Navy's South Atlantic Blockading Squadron. The ship they chose was the USS Housatonic. They attacked and sank it. Their weapon system was a spar-mounted torpedo or basically an explosive device on the end of a pole bolted to the bow of the submarine. And uh, with this device floating it against the side of Housatonic, they sank it, uh, becoming first submarine in history to sink an enemy ship in a combat situation. So that's the significance of Hunley. It sank a ship in battle. Uh, it wasn't the most, it wasn't the first submarine, of course. The concept had been around for centuries. And the first submarine 
is credited to David Bushnell uh, and his turtle that was used to try and sink British warships in New York Harbor during the Revolutionary War. Others had started experimenting with submarines during the 19th century. Um, and at the time the Hunley was in operation, there were more advanced submarines around the world. However, they didn't do anything like the Hunley did. Hunley sank a ship, so representing kind of a landmark in naval history. And so that's the the quick and dirty uh, story of H.L. Hunley. Something I find interesting is the Hunley wasn't part of the Navy, was it? Yeah, people make this mistake often. They assume it was part of the Confederate Navy and they call it the CSS Hunley. Uh, and CSS would be true if it was commissioned as a naval vessel to the to the Navy. Uh, it was not. It was a private venture, uh, civilian entirely. Now, at various points, the Confederate military, specifically the Army, took it over. But you have to remember, the submarine was considered kind of a, an anomaly. It was a quirky thing that nobody, well, a lot of people that saw it didn't think this would ever possibly work. Uh, kind of like an early airplane, you know. Certainly military uh, generals and admirals tend to be very, fairly conservative in the adoption of new technologies because, frankly, the, the, the penalties for a bad idea being implemented are pretty severe when it comes to military operations. So they tend to err on the side of caution and have to be you know, shown that something is worthwhile before they will adopt it. And, and the same was true with submarines during this period. No submarines in any military around the world at this time were incorporated. A lot of them were not even considered uh, a possibility, but they existed. Um, and I think this is definitely the case of where during the Civil War, the uh, the North had a good Navy, the South did not. From the Confederate point of view, they needed to try other things to try and do something to defend their ports. Every major port, this was part of the U.S.'s strategy put together by General Winfield Scott, uh, which is to strangle the South by closing off all their ports, preventing trade, commerce, that kind of thing, and, and supply. And it was working. Uh, so uh, the Confederates were de desperate a little bit to try and do something about this blockade and were willing to embrace some rather unconventional methods to try and do so. And that included submarines. They also used semi-submersible boats, specifically in Charleston. There was a, a series of boats called the David, as in David versus Goliath. These were small cigar-shaped uh, semi-submersibles, kind of like the Hunley, but uh, with a steam engine. And they made a somewhat successful attack on the, the Admiral's flagship of the U.S. Navy's fleet uh, that same fall that the Hunley was in operation here. They didn't sink it, but they damaged it. And then there were other small boats that were being sent out to try and do something about them. So they were willing to try anything, and that included using something as unconventional and unproven as a submarine or a submersible. General Longstreet reined his horse in close to General Lee, and he removed his earbuds and said, Sorry, General, could you repeat those orders? I was just listening to the latest from the Untold Civil War podcast. Lee looked up from his smartphone and said, General Longstreet, you are missing out on more Untold Civil War if you do not subscribe to the Untold Civil War YouTube channel and watch their video content. Be like Lee and subscribe using the link in the show notes. You know, the Hunley was successful in, in sinking that Union ship, but it doesn't make it back to shore, right? Right. Yeah, that's the that's the the interesting part of it. That's where the mystery begins. Its significance is not that you know it was. It's been called a successful failure because it did accomplish a feat in naval history, first ever, you know, world's first. Uh, but then it didn't come back. So it was successful in its mission, but it failed because it didn't return to shore. And that added an element of mystery to the entire story that sort of worked its way into South Carolina legend and lore. Everyone knew 
well, not everyone, but many people knew about the story of the lost submarine. Uh, nobody knew what happened to it. Did it get swept up the sea? Was it was it scooped up in a salvage operation that wasn't reported? You know, because d- during the later stages of the war and after, there was a lot of heavy salvage of all the shipwrecks and sort of materiel left over offshore from the war, commissioned by the the U.S. government and the authorities in Charleston to clear the coast for navigation and trade. And, you know, people speculated that uh, Hunley would be found amongst the wreckage of Housatonic and that may have actually been salvaged. But nobody really knew until its discovery in 1995. And uh, you were part of that uh, expedition, right? Um, I was recovering it. I was part of the, well, not the 95 uh, discovery. I was here for the recovery. So I came um, straight from uh, from college uh, in 2000 to uh, to help with the recovery. So just a few weeks before it was raised from the ocean. And that must have been an amazing experience. It was part confusion and excitement on my part, <laughs> because like many people, I knew very little about the H.L. Hunley um, uh, when it came to Charleston. Uh, my my background had been in uh, Byzantine studies, but more relevantly, uh, I did a lot of work on digital documentation and 3D re- uh, point recording on some previous projects. So I was brought in specifically to help with that and then had a quick education on submersibles and the Civil War that I didn't know about, because I didn't realize, like many people, that that they had even had submarines at that period. And so it was it was very exciting to see this and sort of be uh, brought up to speed on all of this, on the story of the submarine, which was fascinating. And yeah, and then I, I became a part of the project and have been here ever since. All right, you've watched all the reruns of Magnum PI that you can watch. It's time to subscribe to something else. Check out History Fix at the link in the show notes. Watch programs such as a tour of the RMS Queen Mary the Lost Battalion of World War I, and even a program on how to make 18th century ice cream. Don't miss out. Well, before we get into uh, the recovery and maybe some updates on this uh, open case, this cold case, if you will, there has been in the news uh, talking about the tragedy of the Titan. And of course, on the show, we send our condolences to everyone who was involved. But a lot of historians, a lot of history buffs, when they watch the news, they love to draw parallels. And I can't tell you how many people immediately message me trying to draw some parallels between Titan and the Hunley. Maybe we can set the record straight for for those who are asking those questions. Did the investigation into the uh, Titan disaster influence any knowledge on the Hunley? Uh, Or on the flip side, did any of the recovery techniques used during the Hunley influence the recovery efforts on Titan? Uh, yeah, that's an easy one. Uh, short answer, no. Uh, there's really uh, not too many parallels other than the obvious small submersible vessel. Hunley was designed to operate in shallow water uh, over 150 years ago with a dramatically different technology. And its loss had, you know, is completely different than what happened to the, the unfortunate folks that lost their lives on Titan. So uh, no, no parallels other than the size and the shape, but the completely different design circumstance. I'm glad we can clear that out of yeah. the way. And, and you know, um, because there were some questions uh, in regards to that. But of course, last time we spoke was in 2019, I believe it was uh, pre-pandemic. And since then, what was it like doing research on the Hunley during the pandemic? And are, are there any updates since 2019 that you'd like to share with us? The, the pandemic was somewhat challenging for us as an active laboratory. Um, and we had to continue a presence here at our facility because we have a lot of artifacts um, that were undergoing conservation treatment. And so that involves having people come in and, and monitor readings, chain solutions, that kind of thing. And we, we dealt with that 
best we could. We were all working from home or working remotely, but uh, we would send conservators in periodically uh, every week to monitor the ongoing uh, treatments um, and uh, check, make sure everything was okay. You can't just walk away from something like this. So besides that, though, uh, the archaeological team had the benefit of being able to work remotely uh, because by 2019, most of our, or 2020, when this started, uh, most of our material had been digitized. So we had all of our sketches and notes and photographs and everything else related to the artifacts and the archaeological investigation had already been scanned or, or brought into the digital world. And uh, so we were able to access that stuff remotely. Uh, so we were fortunate that we weren't, you know, still, we had already collected all the data from our artifacts from the submarine that we needed at that point. So we were able to do most of our research and uh, and work from remote locations and not have to, to come in. And that lasted about a year. We were also fortunate that our major push at that point and still to this day is uh, putting together a uh, the second in a three volume set of major reports on the results of the archaeological investigation. And so we're working on number two of three right now, uh, focusing on the excavation itself, crew and the artifacts recovered in association with them. The one type of work that did continue during the pandemic was um, excavation of block lifts, kind of related to the, the report that I just mentioned. Uh, and was on an ongoing conservation project before the pandemic started. But we transitioned about halfway through it to, uh, to coming back in. A few would come in during the week uh, to work on these things we call block lifts uh, during the excavation of the interior of the submarine. Because of the small and restrictive work environment inside the submarine, remember the submarine is only three and a half feet wide and four feet high, uh, interior crew compartment dimensions. Uh, and that limits what you could do in that space add to the fact that it was often dark, muddy, wet, difficult working conditions. So delicate operations like untangling human remains wrapped with textiles with artifacts mixed in, it was decided the procedure became to remove that in a block and excavate it more carefully in the lab. This has its own complications for this, but it, it was a, it was really the best uh, solution to the problem. Um, and a lot of these were had went through several phases of excavation to remove the human remains and the artifacts early on, leaving what was left, which was typically sediment um, and textiles. We started a process of going through and re-excavating these and actually eliminating the block lift and returning it to, well, basically recovering all the textile fragments from within because we were trying to understand what the crew wore as part of our investigation into who these guys were beyond the physical examination of their remains, which had been done, the examination, examination and analysis of their artifacts, which was complete. Uh, what was left was their clothing. What were they wearing? And this is kind of an important thing. What they wore can tell us about a little bit more, if we didn't know it already, about their backgrounds, their military service, and what they chose to wear. It's important to, to remember that when you're investigating something like this, a shipwreck, for example, it captures a moment in time like other archaeological sites don't, um, because everything there was there that one instant, that one night. But we have an amazing collection of artifacts that we can tie to a day over 150 years ago. So what were they all, what did they all choose to wear? Tells us about who they were as people at that moment. And that's really what we're trying to understand here. We use archaeology to gather evidence from the past and look at the physical remains. But what we're trying to do is use that as a tool to help us understand the people. Because history and archaeology is really, well, History is about people. That's what fascinates me. I want to know who these people were, why they do what they did, and how similar and different they might have been to us today. To understand the historical event, you understand who was involved and why they chose to do what they did. Like, what were these guys' motivations? How did they see this happening? Because sometimes when you're trying to figure out, you know, what caused a tragedy in the past, stakes can be made. And so 
what were they trying to do? You got to establish that first. And then in the in the uh, attempt to try and do what they tried to do, did that result in an accident or a problem that led to their loss? So it's all interconnected, of course. But uh, so so understanding how they approach this mission in terms of something as simple as what they chose to wear can be very illuminating in this regard. The latest edition of Military Images magazine is hot off the press. The autumn edition includes a piece on the Herb Peck Civil War photo collection, a collection that was stolen and the culprit still at large. Famous Europeans who almost, but did not become US generals during the war, and an article sharing a Civil War veteran's advice for the future get access to these articles at the link in the show notes i imagine if we look at what they wore you can figure out exactly what sort of climate it was inside right simple question like this would be like a i get some of the most amazing questions during tours from middle school students um you know because they come up with the questions that adults just gloss over like where did they go to the bathroom on board the submarine you know um what were they wearing was it hot in there you think they were were they sweating and you think okay well this is you know, this is really filling in the atmosphere of what these guys went through. And we have to ask, was it hot? Was it cold? We look at the archaeological evidence and we find uh, something as simple as a button. Now, lots of buttons were found inside the submarine, more buttons than clothing. Um, the environmental conditions on the sub meant that practically no cotton survived, all digested by bacteria, but wool survived. We interpret what they're wearing by looking not just at the the wool fragments, which was very fragmentary and mushy, like like I don't know, wet uh, tissue paper or wet uh, paper towels. In some cases, we look at the buttons left behind, and the buttons tell us so much about the garments and the textiles that are gone. Um, and you'd be surprised how many buttons an adult male would have on them when you start counting it up. Your, your dozens of buttons, you know, jacket buttons, uh, cuff buttons, uh, collar buttons, pant buttons. Uh, undershirt. Um, do they have a, a kepi on? Well, there's two buttons on the side of a kepi, you know, so it adds up. So we use that to understand what they were, uh, what they had on them. And uh, when you look at the buttons, it's not just collecting all the buttons. Of course, archaeological research involves documenting where everything was. I always say it's more like crime scene investigation than historical research because you, we approach it, this, we use the same techniques that, you know, crime scene investigators do. Don't touch anything. Don't disturb the evidence. Record where everything is. We're going to reconstruct how this happened. And we do the same thing. And so we found some of these buttons with no textiles. Textile gone. Upside down on the bench that the crew sat on. Like, huh, that's interesting. A whole row of them. Well, a small row of them. And what we realized is that this, these buttons got here on purpose. Or in other words, they didn't just fall here. They didn't fall off somebody. It really shows us that this individual, at least, took his jacket off and was sitting on it. That tells us a couple of things. Uh, one, it was probably warm in there. And two, the wooden bench was hurting his backside, right? And he needed something, he needed a cushion, right? Makes sense. We're like, yeah, how come we only have one individual doing this? What about the rest? Maybe they all had pillows or something, but if there wasn't a button on this thing, and to be honest, if I'm gonna sit on a cushion, I probably don't want it, too many buttons on it, then, then we would have no evidence of it. And so it sort of points out what they were doing, but it reminds us, that uh, there's still a lot that's unknowable because the the evidence doesn't survive. Like, you know, a cotton pillow is gone. Anyway, that's a long aside. Well, <laughs> on, uh, you know, it, it, I find that fascinating because when you look at buttons as well, I know there are people who collect Civil War buttons and they sure. can tell you that, oh, this button was made 
you know, in this factory in South Carolina, or this is an infantry button, this is a cavalry button. So you're probably right. able to look at some of those buttons and you can tell that person's background or or military career, I guess, maybe. No, you cannot tell any of that from the buttons. Oh. What you can oh, okay. tell is what was there, right? So you got to be clear, set the parameters, honestly, you know, there's a jacket, it was there, it had, say, uh, US Navy buttons on it. I can tell you a lot of things. One, let's, you know, let's forego the assumption that maybe this was the neighbor's jacket and he gave it to the other guy. Could could be a possibility. We can we can explore that and rule that out. But it could only tell you so many things and then the rest is speculation. So you start with what's what you know. This is what we found. And then you first step is to figure out what that tells you just at face value. And then you can extrapolate out and combine that. It's the combination with other evidence. Yes, US Navy buttons. Well, of the three individuals in this area, only one of them served in the US Navy before coming over to the Confederate Navy. Okay, that kind of narrows it down. He also has this, he has that. Next door, there were artillery buttons. So one of the individuals was in the light German artillery, probably his. You're just, you're not proving anything that you're just uh, narrowing down the possibilities. We have to be careful we don't jump to too many conclusions that are unwarranted or at least keep in mind the other maybe less likely possibilities as, you know, even something's not as likely it still could have occurred. And I think that navigating this and sort of sorting through these possibilities is what I find extremely fun in this process, you know, uh, talking about the possibilities and trying to get closer to understanding these guys. And there's lots of times where we have to take a couple steps back and say, wait a second, you know, we thought these buttons were Kepi buttons, but now maybe they're collar buttons. Why? How? Depends on where they were. Well, lots of things. It's amazing how often you have to reevaluate your interpretation. And I like doing that too. So, Are you a Civil War relic collector who has just realized they have nothing in their collection pertaining to the Confederate Navy and even Union Navy? Well, hurry over to the Excelsior Brigade and let them help you complete your Civil War display. Link in the show notes. Are there moments where while you're doing this, these people sort of, you know, not to get too sentimental, but maybe mm -hmm. things sort of become very real uh, because you're now looking at something that someone was wearing, right. someone touched. You it's know? very easy to get disconnected. I, I try to remember back to the first time when I was excavating the interior. You know, we went through a lot of mud, just sterile sediment before hitting the first artifacts, which coincidentally, based on our previous discussion, were um, the buttons on the bench that I just I talked about. High up on the bench, they were held there after death and decomposition and disarticulation of the bodies and the you know, the settling down of a lot of this material to the bottom of the submarine. They, re they reminded us that people, this is a grave we're working on. And there was some discussion early on, some serious consideration, like, is this appropriate? You know, when does when does a grave become an archaeological site? It's arbitrary. You know, when, why don't they don't they excavate the USS Arizona? It's, it's not deemed appropriate. Well, we can do that here. There's no answer. I mean, uh, when does, is, you know, is it, is it appropriate to excavate the Titanic and, and try and if we found remains in the Titanic, would we, you know, recover them? I mean, and so this is a, it's a perennial question and a, a moral issue too. When does your ancestors' graves become an archaeological site? Um, you know, people have wrestled with this in terms of indigenous burials and those kind of things. There's no right answer. Uh, we took care to respect uh, as much as we could, that we were working with human remains. Even though we knew to tell their story, we needed to find out who they were. And we couldn't do that without recovering their bodies. So we did it with with respect for the fact that it was the grave of eight dead individuals who lost their lives, you know, in this circumstance during the war. 
along with five individuals on the USS Housatonic. We don't want to forget about those guys too. 13 people lost their lives during this engagement. And you don't have Hunley without Housatonic. And so when all is said and done, this will be the story of the eight men that lost their lives on Hunley and the five that lost their lives on the USS Housatonic. And uh, we want to honor these individuals uh, by just telling their story, figuring out who they are. Finding the buttons was step one. And then as we got lower down, in the, the sediment stratigraphy, we uh, started recovering or um, encountering the human remains, the skeletal remains of the crew. And that's that's also, uh, as someone who never had to deal with human remains in my archaeological career, because most of the stuff I was working on was far older than would allow for the kind of preservation, um, it, it makes you take pause and it reminds you what you're dealing with here, uh, that people died right here. And you're looking at what's left of them. You know, I had to remind myself as I went through the process, it's very easy to get used to it. Oh, yeah, okay, another bone. And it's just part of the, it's just a job. You know, this is what we're doing. And I had to, I tried to at least uh, remind myself that, you know, these, this isn't just an artifact. This is somebody's arm or this is his hand bone. You know, this was an individual who lived a life for 20 years with this, this bone. And uh, don't want to forget that. You were doing a great job of telling their stories. Uh, one thing I also find fascinating from your experiences is this sort of mix of technology and, and modern technology, as well as old fashioned getting dirty in the mud and just doing the digging, getting in there, uh, finding these artifacts, recovering these artifacts. There's been a lot of talk about AI in the news. Is there a place for AI in the archaeological space? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> Hey, uh, I may be an older guy now, so uh, this new stuff, uh, uh, I'm not, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, besides writing term papers for people, I'm not sure what how AI will, I'm sure it will, but I'm sure how, how it can be integrated into some of these things. I can imagine some possibilities for helping us with research. By the way, I just said, we are trying to explore the possibility of doing better three-dimensional reconstructions of the faces of the group. Uh, sorry, they're, well, their heads, really. They're, they're a facial reconstruction. We, we did this back in 2003 or four, prior to the burial of the remains of the crew, based on a cast of their skulls. And uh, this was moderately successful, but, um, you know, there are limitations when you're using a, a, a cast and, and clay in terms of facial reconstructions. And so the, the, the procedure and the expertise in doing this has improved over the last two decades. And now we're, we're working, um, we started a collaborative project with Clemson's Digital Production Arts Department here in, in uh, North Charleston. And their, their director works as a specialty in faces. And so we are trying to work with him to do facial reconstructions, new facial reconstructions of the crew. And this isn't just for gee whiz. I, of course, want to know what these guys looked like, right? Or get a, a good best guess. As it's complicated with, you know, you, the bones are just a portion of what makes up your, your appearance, right? But the idea is that we would use the facial reconstructions to try and find a match or something that we don't have for any of the crew, which is a photograph. Of all the guys, there's not a single photo confirmed of, of our crew. And there's efforts uh, ongoing right now to create searchable face recognition software for a database of Civil War photographs using AI, I imagine. And so if we could you know, uh, uh, use that new technology to help us search thousands and thousands of un unidentified photos from the Civil War, you know, the idea is that you might be able to find a, a real photograph. And what does that tell us at the end? Uh, not a lot, not a lot. I mean, uh, we can tra trace the photo then, but all the information we can get on these guys when we know so, so little uh, would, would, would better. Um, and that's just one example uh, where AI, I think, could 
uh, could benefit researchers like us and like myself who are constantly digging through old records. A virtual assistant, if you will, to search records that are not uh, that, that we might not know about could be helpful. How that would be implemented, I don't know. In 10 years, it'll probably be more common, but who knows? So short that was the long answer. Short answer is maybe it can help us search archives. Just no more writing term papers, that's all. <laughs> right. Who was the greatest Civil War settler in the reenacting community? None other than the badge maker, of course. He has followed the army and crossed the Potomac more times than one can count. His wares are known amongst the old campaign veterans, and the quality of his workmanship is the talk of every campfire. See his products in the link in the show notes. I guess here, here's the question that I know you're going to pull your hair out. Everyone asks it. I'm sure you, you can't go anywhere without people asking you. But are we any closer to discovering what happened to the Hunley? We we make we make progress by assembling and gathering new information. As we continue to research, we learn more. So I think we're getting closer to narrowing down. We're, we're getting better at narrowing down some of the options. We're getting closer to eliminating some possibilities as proof. For example, we did uh, one of the, uh, and I don't know if we'll be covered the last time we talked, but uh, we uh, have done a lot of collaborative work with institutions around the country and around the world in areas where we don't have expertise. Our expertise is you know, maritime conservation, chemistry involved in corrosion and conservation treatments, and archaeological research with a focus on maritime archaeological research. That's where myself and my colleague, Nick DeLong, uh, trained in uh, nautical and maritime archaeology. So we, we've got those bases covered. However, when we deal with something that has to do with forensic uh, anthropology, we bring in an expert. Uh, medicine, we need a medical examiner to analyze what we've had, take samples, pathology, toxicology, osteology, we bring in experts. Geology, uh, we have a uh, geological expert or marine geologist who works with us on those kind of things. And on the physics of the submarine itself, marine engineering, we bring in an expert. We partner with people. And that's a that's what makes archaeology very collaborative because it it touches on all the uh, all the STEM sciences, right? Uh, we're perfect. Archaeology is perfect for STEM because we have to, in order to do our work, interact and collaborate with all of these hard sciences or different fields. And one of those being that that you know when it comes to the studying the submarine, we have to look at the design, the construction materials, metallurgy, analyzing what happened to the submarine. Of course, the big data point for that is the attack itself. And so we partnered with the U.S. Navy in 2013 to do a study of the blast of the torpedo itself. We wanted to know if that could have been a contributing factor to the loss of the submarine. And this is based on going from what we already knew, maybe a short recap, found the submarine a thousand feet away from the wreck of Housatonic. No obvious signs of damage to the submarine. Well, I take that back. There were signs of damage to the submarine, but nothing catastrophic. We raised the submarine, excavated it, and found the remains of the crew in excellent condition from a skeletal point of view. All the tissue was gone, hair and clumps at the bottom, clothing fragmentary, but excellent preservation of the bones so we could tell any any injuries that they may have sustained and didn't find any. No fractures or micro fractures looked in detail. And then uh, also noticed that every member of the crew had died and decomposed and disarticulated, ended up on the bottom uh, where they operated their station, where they sat at their, their station operating the crank, almost as if they were just sitting there and they went to sleep. Uh, no sign of panic on board. So that helped us sort of think that a simple drowning scenario, which is the most obvious cause of death at off, offshore at sea, uh, was not sufficient. 
to explain what happened. So we said, oh, okay, well, we need to figure out uh, most of the holes in the submarine are a result of scouring corrosion that happened after it was already on the bottom. A few other smaller holes in terminate origin, but we had a problem. We can't just have, you know, the explosion of the Housatonic knock a hole in the submarine. It fills the water and sinks because everybody's kind of sitting where they were supposed to work. And if you're drowning, you're not going to sit still. Something else had to be going on. Um, and so we wanted to know if with the blast of the torpedo itself, the major force in and around this whole event was the explosion of the submarine's 135 pounds maximum uh, black powder charge. And so we sent this data and all the 3D data we had, the U.S. Navy, specifically their Naval Warfare Center in Carter Rock, Maryland. And what these guys do for the U.S. Navy is they test hull response to uh, explosions. They collect data, analyze data, run simulations to see, and this is as far as I know, I could be wrong with some of the small details of this, but, but they look at the, the what blasts do to various configurations of, of hull for the U.S. Navy so that they can better design their ships they look at the effects of these blasts, uh, more importantly, on what happens to the crew inside their vessels. If somebody's standing in a room and there's a certain charge next to the hull, how does the hull deform? How does it impact the individual next to it, if at all? And so we thought these, these guys would be the perfect partners to understand what the blast of Hunley's torpedo could have done to the submarine and to the crew on the inside. So uh, this was a multi-year study and we were hoping this would give us a clue as to what uh, what happened. And what they determined was that uh, because the charge was uh, black powder, interestingly enough, the Navy had no experimental data on black powder explosions since like 1904 because they moved on to high explosives. Modern Navy uses high explosives, you know, C4, TNT, you know, it's all a different animal than what was used during the Civil War, which was very fine rifle powder, but black powder nonetheless. And the difference is that black powder burns slowly, hundreds of milliseconds, as opposed to, say, 10 or 15 milliseconds, which means that because it's so slow in its conflagration, it doesn't create a shockwave. It creates a pressure pulse, but not, it's too slow to create what we consider a shockwave, which if you're standing near a high explosive when it goes off, the shockwave alone could hurt maybe even kill you, which was where we were thinking on this. And the Navy came back after a multi-year study and said, we did testing, we did simulations, virtual simulations. We did three live fire tests at Aberdeen Proving Grounds where we set off 135 pounds of black powder, measured the energy and the forces involved. And they said, fortunately for your research and investigation, this is not going to, could have been a contributing factor to the, uh, uh, certainly not, wouldn't have hurt the, the hull itself, which would easily deflect whatever pressure wave was created. Uh, but that would also protect the crew inside from any sort of force from this pressure wave. But again, remember, it's not a shock wave. It's created, it's too, it's not strong enough for that. It's very destructive close in, would punch a hole in, in the hull of Husatonic, but rapidly drops off as far as energy transference. The only thing that would happen was this pressure wave would hit the bottom and, and, and come up and impact the underside of the submarine, causing a heaving motion. This was their conclusion, which was somewhat disappointing for me because I'm still looking for the smoking gun. I'm trying to answer this big question. What happened then? You know, um, this I thought this would be a great way that I could neatly tie up this, okay, that's why they didn't go anywhere. That's why they didn't panic. They didn't have time. They just were, you know, knocked out or whatever by this, this, this blast. What happens is when you say we're making any progress, I say we're, we are by, but not in the way that people might assume where we're figuring out what the answer is. We're figuring out more what's not the answer. Right. Process by elimination, right? That's how you do it. You, you, you have to, you ask all the possible, you, you come up with all the pos possibilities, put them on the table, 
and then compare that to the evidence. And eventually the evidence can help you sort of remove some of these possibilities as potential theories, right? Now, if have you considered or, or imagined all the possibilities, you could run into problems if you didn't even think about one to even test against, you know, but that's the process, uh, the, the mental process and how you, you, you eliminate things from being in contention. You know, we didn't find a cannonball inside the submarine, so probably wasn't what sank it. There's not a cannon hole in it. Uh, so that kind of thing. Easy ones, and then you narrow it down and harder and harder and harder. There is something that happened that night, and we're trying to get close to it uh, because it's a fascinating story. I, I think it's really interesting to see. I'm interested to see what we come up with, <laughs> you know, as we keep, keep working on stuff. Civil War Trails has just marked another untold Civil War site in Maryland. Thanks to Civil War Trails, these stories we discuss on the show are untold no longer. Visit these trails and stand on the sites where the topics of our episodes actually took place. Use the link in the show notes and support Civil War Trails. No, absolutely. I'm excited to see what else comes out from the investigation. Maybe we can do this, you know, another few years later, see if there's anything new. Uh, I'll be ready for when the book comes out. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, all the publications we put out will be free to the public. Uh, so uh, so everybody will be able to at least download the PDF um, and read all about all the work that we've done and the conclusions we've come to. And where can people learn more about the Hunley and your projects? We're a part of Clemson University. And so we have a website through the university that talks about our lab as a, a scientific conservation lab. The nonprofit Friends of the Hunley has a website, hunley.org, uh, where they post new information. They also have a newsletter called The Blue Light. And some of their information is available on the Naval History and Heritage Command website uh, as part of the U.S. Navy Department of Defense. And that uh, some information is available there as well. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and discussing the Hunley with us. Uh, it's still an open cold case. Um, but like you said, we're this much closer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I hope. I think, you know, we, we keep plugging away. And like I said, we you eliminate possibilities. And in a perfect world, at, at the end, uh, you know, Next month or two years from now, we'll, we'll come down to one really good potential explanation for what happened. Well, thank you. And I hope we can do this again. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. While you decorated the cubicle for fall, planning your upcoming Halloween bash, wondering where Stuart is, trying to decipher McClellan math, or whenever you listen to podcasts. I hope you follow us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram. That way you'll stay up to date with all things untold about the Civil War. And if you are in need of any Civil War graphic design work, maybe you need t-shirts for your round table, bumper stickers for your new car, or even challenge coins for your reenactment group, use the link in the show notes again touch with 1863 Designs. They will have you covered. So bye for now, and I hope you tune in next time for our next episode.